Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Well, thank you all for coming. I realized that was a big decision to come out this morning, so that's a big deal. We appreciate you and your willingness to come out. Uh, earlier when Caleb was talking about all the people that prayed and the rain just stopped, I was expecting him to stop and pray that the snow wouldn't come so you could go home on dry roads, but he didn't. So I'm sorry, I guess we're all driving home in the snow. Maybe he's back there praying right now. Um, I know all of you have a burning question. and The question is, what do pastors dream about the night before they preach? So I know you were thinking that, so let me answer that for you. Um, last night, for whatever reason, I was trying to fall asleep, and then when I did, this is the dream that popped up, I was late for the sermon, my iPad didn't work, and I couldn't find my Bible. So I was standing up here asking people in the front row to hand me their Bible so I could just preach out of the Bible, and every Bible I was handed was in Greek. And um, you might not have this guilt, but I don't know my Greek as well as I used to, so it wasn't really helpful, and it wasn't a very good sermon. But we made it through the first service, and that didn't happen, so just... It doesn't happen this service either. So again, thank you for being here. Uh, those of you who are online, thank you for being here. I know there's probably more online than normal just because of the snow. Uh, as we jump into James, this is a series we're going to be in for a while. When it comes to the folks who are receiving this letter, they're struggling with some stuff and some of the same stuff that we struggle with. They understand the gospel. And when we, when we talk about the gospel, we'll oftentimes put it into 10 words. It just makes it a little easier to understand. We'll say this, God creates which means God made you and me in his image uh, in a way that we can have a deep, real relationship with him. But sin breaks. And what that means is, is that your sin and my sin has broken our relationship with God and broken our relationships with one another. Sin even broke the world itself. But the next phrase is Jesus saves. So Jesus comes in, dies on the cross for your sin and mine, and offers salvation for anyone and everyone who will believe and place their faith in him as Lord and Savior. Now, the folks who are receiving this letter get that. They understand Jesus saves. But the next phrase is Jesus transforms. Jesus saves is not the finish line to the faith. It's the starting line. And then the race that is run is a race of being transformed by Jesus himself from now until I see him face to face when God restores all things. The folks here need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that. Just listen to the phrase. Jesus transforms. Jesus transforms. If there's any point in our life where we don't put Jesus at the center, where his priorities, his expectations, his words, his desires become less important than ours, then we're stuck in a bad position. In this moment, then I'm stuck with Mike transforms. And that's not part of the gospel message, and that doesn't work very well. But when we put Jesus in the center, and his words and his priorities become our words and our priorities, and we try to live based upon what he says, all of a sudden we're back in the race, and we're being radically changed and transformed by Jesus himself. That's what these folks need to hear. So as we jump into the second part of chapter one, we're going to be looking at how Jesus transforms different parts of who we are. Point one is Jesus transforms our perspective. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to James chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 19. We're going to work through the rest of the chapter. It starts with this. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone, everyone, whenever you hear that, just include yourself. Everyone should be quick 
to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why slow? For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So this verse calls us to a couple of things. One, we should be quick to listen. When we're quick to listen, that means I'm very focused on what you're going to say. I'm very other-centered. When I'm quick to speak, that means I'm really focused on what I want to say. We're called to be slow to anger and slow to speak. Why should we be slow? Because I would suggest to you that the rest of the verse warns us. It says that the anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. So if we're not careful, that anger can take us in a bad direction where we lead towards unrighteousness, where we look not like Jesus, but we look like a horrible version of ourselves. So the question there is, is anger ever okay? And when is it okay? So when I slow down, what am I supposed to do when I slow down? So the New Testament gives us two examples of a righteous anger and then kind of a unrighteous anger. So let's talk about those, and then we can kind of reassess ourselves. So even as I'm talking through these two examples, think back to the last time you were angry. And that might not take, you might not have to walk that far back in your mind. So maybe think back to this morning when you were angry, or yesterday when you were angry, or maybe earlier this week for some of you, the, the very godly of us, last week when you were angry, like, why were you angry? What got you going? How'd you go from being okay to getting all stirred up to where the anger started to well up inside of you? This is us slowing down and asking a question that matters. So one example of anger is Jesus. In Jesus's life, in John chapter 2 and in Matthew 21, we see him walk into the temple and when he goes into the temple, they're getting ready for Passover. So there's a bunch of folks, and they're selling Passover animals, which they will sacrifice on Passover. So there's some selling cattle, some are selling sheep, lambs, doves. And Jesus looks at what's happening, and he's angry. Not a little angry, but like make a whip kind of angry. And he probably didn't make a whip just for show. He probably used the whip. Because the next thing we see is that the cattle and the sheep are rushing out of the temple. There are tables being flipped. There's probably money in the air. Like Jesus goes off on these folks. Why does he go off on these folks? Jesus never sinned. Is this anger righteous or is this anger unrighteous? Well, it can't be unrighteous. So what was Jesus focused on here? Jesus was well aware of this. This temple was a place to honor the Father. This was a place to pray to the Father, to worship the Father, and it's turned into a marketplace. So as he's flipping the tables, he tells them, you've taken my Father's house from a house of prayer to a den of robbers. So he's angry because the Father is being dishonored, but catch what he said, the den of robbers. So it's probably not just a normal exchange. It sounds like people are being taken advantage of here. In Matthew 21, and this is interesting, I'd never noticed this before, but Matthew focuses on those who are selling doves. John talks about the cattle and the lambs and the sheep, but Matthew only focuses on the doves. Back in the day, if you could not afford a lamb, if you just had less than other people, then you went to the table that sold the doves and you would buy the doves. Likely, even the person who's selling the doves is mistreating and taking advantage of those who have very little. 
What a horrible moment. Jesus sees the, mis- the, the mistreatment of those who have very little. So Jesus responds because the father's being dishonored and people are being mistreated. So anger is his response. And that's a reasonable, right, righteous way of responding. Jesus' anger is exactly what it should have been at the exact measure it should have been. Now, he's not the only example of anger in the New Testament. Do you all remember the Pharisees? If you've spent much time in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you've been introduced to these guys. These guys are like the religious leaders of the day. Before Jesus was on the scene, they were the ones shaping the expectations of spiritual life for the nation of Israel. And as they shaped it, they shaped it in such a way that they brought themselves much honor. They shaped it in such a way that attention was focused on them. God said, do this, and then they would add extra expectations to what God expected, and then expected everyone to live by those. But only they could live by those, because they had set up their lives to be able to live in such a way that the average person couldn't. So they looked super spiritual, and everyone else struggled to keep up. Jesus shows up on the scene. Jesus shows up on the scene, the Son of God, by whom, for whom, and to him all things were created, who's only ever lived his entire life to serve and to love and to take care of others, who spoke in grace and truth at all times, who never sinned, the Pharisees are always angry at that guy. They're angry at the Son of God. They're angry at the one who has committed no sin. They're angry at the one who will die on the cross for their sake. Well, why? Why would they be angry at Jesus? It seems that wouldn't make any sense. But every time Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus is focused on honoring the Father and taking care of those who are hurting. The opposite of what the Pharisees had become accustomed to. The Pharisees were focused on honoring themselves and making sure nobody mistreated them, right? So when Jesus would show up, he did not focus on honoring them and pay homage to the Pharisees, he honored the Father, which meant sometimes he had to correct the Pharisees. And when he correct them, it looked bad for them publicly. So over time, you see the Pharisees getting more and more angry to the point where they rile up a crowd that yells, crucify, crucify. And though God is sovereign over everything that happened to Jesus, they made every effort they could to get rid of this guy because they hated him so much. This type of anger is an unrighteous anger. It's the type of anger that's focused on yourself, The question that they're asking, if they were to slow down and say, why am I angry? They would say, well, because Jesus stepped on my toes. Jesus wasn't looking out for my best. Jesus made me look bad. Did you notice the consistency of me, me, me? So for you, with your anger, for me, with my anger, when it starts to bubble up, when you feel it taking over, is it because someone's dishonoring God? Is it because you're seeing someone being mistreated? Or is it because someone's dishonoring you? Because someone isn't respecting you? Because someone is, from your point of view, mistreating you? If that's the case, then that anger is going in a very unrighteous direction. If it's because you care about God and others, it's going in a right direction. Sometimes you'll hear us say the phrase up here, gospel-centered. Okay, And the way we set up our church, we are gospel-centered in what we do. But gospel-centered also affects the way we view different aspects of our life when we come at it from what we've learned about what Jesus has accomplished for us. So when it comes to being gospel-centered in our anger, here's a way of thinking about it. I remember the fact that God made me to have a relationship with him, a deep, ongoing, forever relationship. 
because of my sin, because of your sin, the Bible says that without Jesus, God looks at you and I as objects of wrath. Without Jesus, the Father looks at me with incredible anger and rage, the type of rage that affects me in the moment, throughout the entirety of my life, and for all of eternity, separated from him in a place of torment. That's how much anger we're talking about. And it's the right amount of anger. It's the right amount of anger. It's measured. It's appropriate. That's how much, that's how bad that sin is. So in that moment where I'm watching the anger come at me, the rage come at me, what does Jesus do? He steps in. And when Jesus steps in on the cross, he bears, he takes all that anger, all that rage on himself on the cross. Yes, the physical torture on the cross was beyond what we can understand, but the spiritual torture that Jesus experienced as the wrath of God landed on him squarely and completely and fully for your sake and mine, that's where the real torture was. So Jesus stands in our place. I stepped on God's toes. I disrespected God the Father and God the Son steps in my place and he takes on the anger. What does he give me or you? Grace, abounding mercy, love unending now and forever. Now, let's take that perspective back to anger. When someone mistreats you, what's the appropriate response? When I mistreated God, Jesus stepped in and poured out onto me grace and mercy and love. So when someone mistreats me, should I grab them by the neck? Should I use an inappropriate finger? Like, what do I do? How do I respond? If I'm responding like how Jesus responded to me, then my response is love, mercy, grace, and even relationship. Instead of being separated from God forever, I'm now given a relationship forever. So when someone mistreats me or mistreats you, perhaps it's an opportunity to build relationship. It doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean it's not hard. But it's the difference between being me-centered and being gospel-centered. So as we continue through the text and we keep thinking about Jesus transforms, he not only transforms our perspective, which is what the gospel does, he also transforms our priorities. In verse 21, he says this, therefore, whenever you see the word therefore, here's just something to help you out. The therefore is always pointing towards the main point of the passage. Therefore, picture it as an arrow pointing to, here's where I'm going. Therefore, get rid of, of all moral filth and evil. So all that anger that's unrighteous, you have to get rid of that. When you speak first and you don't care what other people have to say, you need to get rid of that, along with all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent. It's everywhere. It's all around you and it's in you. You have to get rid of it and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Don't miss the word humbly right there. That's, that's the pivot point. That's where this whole thing works or doesn't work. If there isn't humility, the verse stops. Humility says, I recognize God's value, God's worth, and I recognize my place and who I am in light of God's world. So in light of that, that's where humility comes from. And from there, we accept the word, the gospel, the Bible that he's given us, which can save us when we believe. Verse 22 says this, do not merely listen to the word 
and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This is an interesting verse. Don't merely listen to the word and deceive yourselves. How can it be deceiving to just read the word of God? Sometimes we read God's word just to check a spiritual box. Like if you're my buddy, I'm probably at some point going to ask you how you're doing and reading God's word. And if your goal is just to make me feel good by checking your box, there's deception happening. You think you're becoming more spiritual. You think you're being transformed when in reality, there's no Jesus transforming at that moment. You're being self-deceived because the call to God's word is you receive it and then you do what it says. If there's no response to God's word, then it's not actually being used in the way it's designed to be used. It'd be like if I'm a quarterback and I've got a running back, balls hiked, hand him the ball. What is he supposed to do? Get us some yards, right? Hit the hole, get us some yards. But if the running back, every time he gets the ball, just stands there, what's going to happen to that guy? I mean, he's going to get pummeled, right? Again and again, he's going to get crushed. So what happens after enough plays? That dude is hurt and the entire team suffers because we keep getting negative yards. The same thing happens when we say we have God's word. It's been implanted us, but we don't do anything with it. We're not being changed by it. It'd be like someone going to driver's ed and learning everything that they need to learn, passing the tests, And then when it comes time to actually drive, they don't care about anything they learned and they think, I'm just going to do this however I want. How's that experience going to go? Not great, right? Not great for them, but also not great for anyone else on the road with them. It puts everyone at risk. It's the same thing for us. We're designed to be in God's word and to be changed by God's word. We get the ball and we run for yards. So another illustration James gives us is this, 123 through 24. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and then after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he or she looks like. I mean, how weird would it be if I came up to you and said, so what color are your eyes? And you looked at me and said, I have no idea. Could, could you look at my eyes and tell me what color my eyes are? Like, that's what we're talking about here. Like, just a level of lack of awareness, where you look at something, you just walk away, and it doesn't change you in any way, shape, or form. There's no understanding of what's going on. That's, it's expected that if you look in the mirror, you're going to look at yourself. It's expected that if you look at God's word, you're going to reflect on God's word, and there'll be change. There'll be movement of head and heart. Verse 25 says this, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, or abides in it, or lives in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So when it comes to reading God's word, the description here is looking at it intently, with intentionality, with intensity. There's, it's not just, do I check a box, but do I really understand what it's saying? It's not just reading four chapters, it's reading however much you can read and still hold on to and be changed by and to get and to absorb is how much you should read. So sometimes if I'm reading something in the Old Testament and I'm going through a story, I can read several chapters. If I'm reading the book of James, for me, and this is just me, sometimes I don't make it past three, four, five verses. And I know I have to go back and read it again at lunchtime. 
and I have to read it again at dinner time because it takes me that long for it to really sink in and to really ask the question, where does my life not line up with what I just read? What do I need to change? How does my heart need to change? How does my head need to change? How do I need to change what I do with my hands to live out what I just read? So if I'm intently looking at God's word, sometimes I slow down and I don't get as much done because I'm really focusing on what I'm reading. With this same emphasis, Paul talks to a young guy named Timothy in the book of 2 Timothy, and he's preparing Timothy to lead this young church. And he brings incredible emphasis to Timothy about the importance and the centrality of God's word. The book's only four chapters long. I'm going to read some verses from that book. I want you to notice this ongoing emphasis. I even want you to notice I'm going to read a verse from each chapter of the book. Paul goes back to it again and again and again, the incredible importance of the centrality of God's word for Timothy leading God's people in this young church. Chapter 1, verse 13 Paul tells Timothy, Timothy, retain, hold on to the standard of sound words which you've heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain is like handing that guy the ball and saying, don't let go of it. Verse 14 is very similar. It says, guard the good deposit which was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Hold on to it so tightly. In fact, I need more than just two hands on the ball. I would like you to do this. Pray, get the Holy Spirit involved. Don't fumble the ball. Retain it, hold on to it, guard it with everything you've got because this is the centerpiece of how you're gonna grow, how you're gonna be transformed. Your role as a Christian is to hold on to this thing with everything you've got, even with the power of the Holy Spirit himself. Chapter two, verse 15. He says, do your best, Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved. So how do you receive that approval? It looks like this. You need to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Sometimes we'll read God's word, but we don't know if we're correctly handling the word of truth. But that's the call here. That's the expectation here is that we're actually correctly handling the word of truth. So if we don't correctly handle the word of truth, if we're not totally sure what we're reading, if we don't make an effort to understand, then things can happen like this. I look at the promises of God, but I don't fully understand them. I don't understand that some of them are for me. So I go through life a little afraid. I go through life with more anxiety than God wants me to have, more stress than I'm designed to have because I don't fully understand and I can't lean into the promises God has for me. That's a hard life. Or perhaps when it comes to the promises, I think the promises mean one thing, so therefore I expect God to do this, this, and this, but I misunderstood the promise. Therefore, God is not meeting my expectations, but he never told you he was going to do what you thought he was going to do. So now you live a life disappointed with God, frustrated with God, cynical at God because you misunderstood his promises. So understanding it correctly makes a huge difference in the way you understand God, your life, your relationships. So it's hugely important, perhaps when it comes to his commands. You read a command and God calls you to do this. And you think, well, that's good, but I'm going to add to that. I'm going to not do this, and I'm not going to do that, 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 or that also. So now you've created a box that you have to live in. But it's not just you. Everyone who comes in contact with you who knows you're a Christian also comes in contact with the box you've created. And that box doesn't look like Jesus. 
you've added to it. So it kind of makes you look a little strange. Even they probably know God didn't call you to do that, but you're living out something God hasn't called you to. Or you look at a command and you say, you know what, I'm going to follow that some days, but I'm not going to follow that other days. That feels like too much. So you take away from God's command. In the same way, then you have people around you judging Jesus because of your actions. So we have to fully understand, correctly apply his promises and his commands. We want to be a worker who needs not be ashamed. Chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, we see the nature of God's word described and the purpose of God's word expressed. And it says this, all scripture, all of it is God breathed, as though God breathed the words on the pages of your Bible. They are from God. Yes, they might be through James or through Paul or through the author, but they're his words. So when it comes to authority, assume that you and God are having a conversation. He's looking you right in the eyes. He's saying exactly what you're seeing on the pages of your Bible. They are God-breathed, and they're useful. There's purpose and usefulness to these words. They teach us. They tell us, this is the way to go. They can rebuke us and say, well, no, not that way. Sometimes they also correct us and say, so this is how you do it. And they train us in righteousness, and they say, here's the path I want you to follow. They'll teach, they'll rebuke, they'll correct, they'll train us in righteousness. Why? So that the servant of God may be thoroughly, fully, completely equipped, prepared for every good work. God has an amazing life designed for you. He has works he's prepared for you. And the way that you are prepared, equipped, able to go and do those works of service is by you being centered on God's word. When you see God's word as God's words and you let them influence you by teaching you, correcting you, rebuking you, and training you, you are now prepared and equipped as a child of God to live out the life that God's given you to live. That's that blessing that James was talking about earlier. Chapter four, verses one and two. Um, Really, we just need to read verse two, but verse one sets up verse two. Listen to the emphasis that Paul brings to Timothy in verse one. He says, in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead in the view of the appearing of his kingdom, I give you this charge, all right? So Timothy, wake up. If you've been sleep reading this, it's time to wake up. Preach the word. Timothy, preach the word. If people want to listen to it, doesn't want to listen to it, preach it. If they don't want to listen to it, preach it. If people argue with you, preach it. If it's no longer culturally relevant, you still preach it. Preach the word. Be prepared in season, out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's the call to Timothy. Sometimes it's going to be a rebuking nature from God's word, and you're going to feel it. Even our anger conversation, it felt like there were moments where God had to rebuke me. There's correcting moments. How do I recenter myself? And there's encouraging moments where it's like, even though you struggle, Jesus' love for you hasn't changed. So when we preach the word, it takes us through this cycle of repentance and faith and growth where Jesus transforms us with great patience and careful, kind, ongoing, nurturing instruction. All of this points to the incredible centrality of Scripture, not just hearing it, 
not just hearing it. It's great that it washes over us, but there's more to it than that. We're called to understand it to the best that we can, and we'll grow in that over time. We study it. We talk to each other about it. And finally, we put God's word into action. When we do those things, when we put God's word first, what we're saying is, Jesus, you're more important. Your priorities, your words, your desires are more important than mine. So how do we begin living this way? How do we live this way consistently? How do we go from being hearers to doers? And how do we go from I'm most important to Jesus is most important? I would suggest this is not a complicated response. I would say it's as simple as this. We have to be God's people together in God's word. God's people in God's word together. And I can say it a lot of different ways. God's people in God's word together on mission. God's people in God's word together on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. But it comes back to that first spot, that first piece, that first step. God's people in God's word together. So how do we do that here at Bible Center? I would suggest there's several different environments where that happens. Here's one environment, but this would be corporate discipleship. Like, I'm talking to you about God's word, but you're not talking back to me. And I'm not going to encourage that because that would be awkward. You're not talking back to me about what you're learning. We're not discussing. We're not talking through it. I'm not helping you apply it specifically to your own life. So this is helpful, but this is corporate, not personal discipleship. We still have a ways to go. We have community discipleship, which looks like our small groups that aren't that small. We have 15 people, 20 people, 35 people in a group, and it's great. There's content and there's connection. And if you've been in most of these groups, they're great, but you usually have 20% of the people doing 80% of the talking, and then the other 80% of the people do 20% of the talking or none of the talking. So there's communal conversation, but so often there's many who just never get to share, never get to apply, never get to discuss what they're learning, where they're going, and their next steps. So we're going to start a third environment these are going to be called discipleship groups. We've had discipleship groups. This is discipleship group 2.0. In our previous discipleship group, some of you have been a part of those, we spent a lot of time equipping people in how to read God's word, which I love. That whole handling the word of God correctly, let's commit to that. Let's do it. So we spent a lot of time on that, but we didn't get a lot of time in actually being in God's word together. So 2.0 is an attempt to bring equipping how to read God's word, along with actually reading God's word together in community. So what does it look like? Say me and the first row decide we're going to start a group together. So we grab our discipleship journal, our D group journal, and inside of it, we pick a reading plan. And in the back, you're going to see multiple reading plans. The group of us decide we're going to do the foundations reading plan, which is a commitment to 40 weeks. We won't have to do it consecutively, but over the course of 40 weeks, we'll meet, and we're going to hit five days a week, one chapter a day. So we commit together for meeting 40 times, maybe over the course of a year, and we each read five chapters a week. If I read my first day, day one, say it's Joshua chapter one, then I go into my journal for my first week, and I will read chapter one, and I'll pick out a couple verses that stick out to me. Maybe verses three and four of Joshua chapter one stick out to me. I'll spend some time answering the questions on the page. Questions look like this, and these questions to help us correctly understand and apply God's word. What is the author trying to say in those couple verses? What is said before those verses? What is said after those verses? 
And how would the audience have understood what you just read? In other words, what is the point? What does it mean? I want you to correctly understand God's word. And then the next question is, based upon what you just learned, how do your emotions, your attitudes, your actions need to change in the way you view and treat God, others, and maybe yourself? And you write down some ways that your life needs to change. And the third thing and the last thing is you pick one big takeaway for the day. Here's the one thing I'm going to focus on changing based upon what I learned what I was challenged with from God's word today. And then all of us get back together for our group time. And in our group time, we do a couple things. One, we stop and we check on each other. So I spend some time sharing a high and low from my week. Here's something that went really well. Here's something that I was thankful for. And then I share something that was hard from my week. And we go around and everybody does that. And when we're done, we pray for each other. So everyone gets to pray and everyone receives prayer. So in that moment, we're caring for one another, we're connecting with one another, and we're praying for one another. Key components of growing in Jesus. And then each of us get to share one page, one day from our journal from the week before. So when I do that, I share something that stuck out to me, what I learned, what the verse means, and then I share something that I'm going to take away from that verse. And the moment I do that, each of us are kind of writing down, how's Mike doing? How can I pray for him? What is Mike working on? How can I help him? So then during the week, I text Travis, and I say, Travis, how are you doing with kinder words to your wife? Travis says, not so good. Brother, I'm praying for you. How can I help? So we have a text thread, and we're taking care of one another. We're helping each other live out God's word together throughout the week. And that's what a group looks like. And then we meet again the next week with new passages. Now, if this group decides to go after it, there's a covenant. There's a commitment that we make together. All these instructions are found at the beginning of the book. Anyone could grab a book and start a group tomorrow. This covenant says a couple things. We together would commit to making every effort possible to make it to group. We're going to make sure that we honestly share what's going on in our lives and what we're learning and how we're trying to change. There'll be confidentiality. So when I tell them how bad of a week I had, they don't tell everyone else how bad of a week I've had. It's just for us. It's a conversation for us. We also commit to this. And I believe Jesus calls us to this. Once the group completes its 40 weeks together, a couple of us go and start another group, and then a couple of us go and start a different group. So one group becomes two groups. Why? Because everyone, everyone needs to grow in their faith. Everyone needs to be in God's word together. So it's not a forever group. It's a 40-week group. And that 40-week group becomes two new groups. Now, this tool is versatile on purpose. Think of it as like a Swiss army knife. So say I want to do a group with my neighbors, and I don't know where my neighbors are at spiritually. All I have to do with my neighbors or my coworkers or my friends or my family members where I don't know where they are spiritually is say, I'm doing a 10-week Bible study. All you have to do is read some chapters on your own, and we just share what we think, what stuck out to us and what we learned. So maybe you start that. And we have a discovery group thing right in the back. It's 10 weeks. And it basically walks through the gospel. So this is an evangelist for you. It's an evangelistic type of 10-week study. The first week, everyone reads Genesis chapter 1. One of the people share and they say, this is crazy. You guys actually believe this? This is nuts. What do you say? I'm so glad you read that. I'm so glad you shared. Cannot wait to hear what you have to share next week. Totally good. 
It takes time for people to work through God's word and understand God's word from God's perspective. And others share, and they come up with very different conclusions. This could be used for evangelism, for outreach. Uh, This also can be used to go as deep as you want to go. A little bit farther back, there's some through your Bible tracks. Those are 40 weeks. That's committing to two chapters of the Bible a day. That's a lot to chew on. Five days a week. If you do this one, you're going to work through a third of the Bible. If you do that one, and you do it again, and you do it again, three different ones, you've worked through the whole Bible at a slower pace, thinking, understanding, applying it all as you go. This can be used to help reach anyone. This can be used for no matter how mature you are, this will still challenge you. We never outgrow God's word. We never outgrow understanding and applying what God is teaching us through his word. So this can keep going and going and going. So when can you do this? You can start participating as soon as you would like to participate. Where? Anywhere you want. Here, in your home, at Panera. You can do it anywhere. How? You can simply grab a book. We have them out here at the front desk. We have them out here by the next steps wall. And then Matt Friend is going to be in room 2104, which is across the hall on this level, across from the kitchen. He's there to answer any more questions you might have. When you get a book, this is all I'm asking from you. We'll give it to you for free but I'd like to get your updated information. I want your name and the best way to contact you. Why? Because I'd like to follow up with you. Make sure I can answer your questions. Make sure I can help you start a group. So you can start your own group, or you can meet some people right now and say, let's start a group. You've got groups of friends. You can start a group after simply reading through it and being ready for it. If you're online and you can't be here and grab your book, at any point this week, you can go to the front desk and you can get one as well. Anyone can start one whenever they would like to start one. If you're part of a younger family and Steve Neal interacts with your kids, next week during the second and third service, when we're not in the middle of Snowmageddon, you'll be able to come get a free breakfast and he's going to talk through with you how you could use this journal in your family. Maybe your family's the first place to start. Wouldn't it be fun to be sitting around and hearing what your kids are learning and you're hearing their ups and downs, ups and highs and lows for the week? That's an opportunity for you. So next week, enjoy that. All of this comes back to this. How do we put Jesus at the center? How do we slow down? How do we, in humility, put his words and his priorities above ours? It's an ongoing struggle. And what's the answer? We need to be God's people with one another in God's word, together, ongoingly, on mission, loving one another. That's not going to happen if Mike transforms or if you transforms. It's only when Jesus steps in. Let's pray for his help. Father, we come before you, and Jesus, we need you. Only you transform us. So Lord, I ask that you would put us in environments and situations, that you would give us courage, that you would make us brave to be able to start discipleship groups, jump into discipleship groups, that we would go deeper with one another in your word. And Lord, even as we prepare our hearts for communion, all of this rests on you, Jesus, and the work you did for us. In Christ's name, amen. For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. 